Hello and welcome to the Cloisterbell podcast presented by Rob and Liam. We continue the run of discussing our favourite stories from each era, and in this podcast we will discuss my favourite Sylvester McCoy adventure, The Happiness Patrol. Communications device reserved for wild catastrophes and sudden calls to man the battle stations. That's the cloister bell. Don't worry about that for now. It's not really terribly significant. The cloister bell? Oh no. Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Liam and I'm joined by Rob. Hi Rob. Hello. <laughs> How are you doing? Good thanks. Um, doing really well. Yeah, the weather's gradually getting... Nice. Uh, mm-hmm. The days are seem to be getting colder, though. I don't know. I'm sure about that. <laughs> it, yeah, it is a bit weird. We'd uh, we had that nice spell of all that snow. Then um, the week after that, the weather picked up. Uh, it was sunny. It was warm. Spring was clearly. It was on really time. nice to go out for walks and things. Yeah. Yeah, and then it um, and then it got doom laden with lots of grey skies and <laughs> the temperature plummeted. But then. We've got the, you know, the, the sun's out for a bit, the daffodils are springing up, it's all rather nice. But yeah, it, it still remains bitterly cold. It's deceiving, <laughs> that's what it is. Yes. <laughs> um, so, lately I've been watching, oh, I've finished my run of WandaVision on Disney+, Plus, mm-hmm. the Marvel show, which is quite good. Um a lot of speculation throughout the series because the episodes were coming out weekly um, and perhaps not just me but uh, perhaps everyone kind of overthought what was going to happen at the end are we going to have any cameos and things which was teased but it was not the case so it was a good ending for us for, for a series but I think we were all expecting more for some reason yeah, but, <laughs> I enjoyed it though but um, looking forward to the next season well, yes, well, it actually continues in Doctor Strange 2. Ah, right, okay. Um, wait, was that a spoiler? No, it wasn't. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, I've been watching The Long Way Up with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Bowman. Right, the bikes. okay. Um, because they did a show Long Way Round in 2004, and they did Long Way Down in 2006 I believe God was it as long as that yeah and just recently um, I think it came out the back end of 2020 they did Long Way Down um, retaining the production team and everything so um, it was quite a good good feel to it Um, problem is it's an Apple TV exclusive Um, so uh, decided to go for the Apple TV trial mm-hmm. because the Apple TV app is available on my TV. Um, and I, managed, I managed to binge it within the trial period. Um, of course, I forgot to cancel the subscription. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so I ended up paying for a month anyway, but uh, that was quite good, yeah. <laughs> good watch. Yes, and this time they went round on electric bikes, so it seemed like a bit of a challenge because the infrastructure wasn't there in the countries. Um, well, it was. It, it 
uh, a private firm came in and um, put these charging points in these countries um, before the trip. So it was quite good. Okay, so is this a case of a a, um, a television program which is uh, actually helped with the country's infrastructure? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's weird. <laughs> um, have you been watching anything lately? Uh, in terms of television, I've been uh, watching Frasier. Um, just been still going through the the first season, um, but I've been enjoying that. It's uh, oh, it's been ages since I've watched something which has given me some belly laughs. Um, so that's been quite nice. And then I've got a bit mad with ordering um, Blu-rays. So I I ordered my first 4K um, Blu-ray. Which is two thousand one: A Space Odyssey. My, go- I mean, uh, it's been years since I've watched that film, but I, I remember it was sort of like the, probably the earliest earliest edition of when that came out on DVD. And um, now watching it again, many many years later on on four K, my goodness, it looks fantastic. Um, Great. Yeah. See, I've got a four K. Pl- no, sorry, I've got a a new four K TV, hmm. um, and I do have some four K discs, but. Um, I'll need the 4K player because the PS4 doesn't play them. Mm, right, okay. Um, so do you think that's something that I should do at some point? I'd, How much would that be? Maybe about 100 quid or something? Y- or less? Maybe less. I mean, because uh, the set that, um, the player that I got was just over uh, £100. Um, but you can get good, you know, decent 4K. I mean, a 4K player is a 4K player, probably. Um, and I would say probably... The biggest thing, I mean, because if it plays 4K, it, it plays it. So you'd probably be able to get a decent player at a, at a reasonable price. Um, I would say the, the big thing to keep an eye on is the HDMI cable that you use to connect the player to the television. Um, try and get a decent one there. Um, but yeah, I would certainly recommend it uh, because you've got these, four, you know, you've, you're not getting the full benefit of, 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 of what's there on the disc. And honestly, it, it does look amazing. Um, so I was incredibly impressed with that. And then um, I have bought, um, there's an Alfred Hitchcock movie called Lifeboat, uh, purchased that. Um, and there's a movie called The Offence, uh, which came out in, I think, 1973. Not many people are aware of it. Um, uh, it stars Sean Connery. And it's when he was brought back to play James Bond for what was supposed to be the final time, but it was the final time in the official series in Diamonds Are Forever. Um he made a, a fantastic deal. I think, you know, certainly in terms of, it, you know, he was the highest paid actor at the time for, for doing that. And and also he incorporated in the deal um, that he could do some films uh, that he he wanted to make. And one of them was The Offence. It's, um, I mean, it's still strong, powerful stuff. And it's, uh, it's quite bleak. And it, it's not something that you could just, oh, I, you know, I, you have to be in the mood to watch that film. It's it's hard hitting. Um, so, um, I was going to say Sylvester McCoy. Um, Sean Connery. <laughs> Sean Connery play, uh, plays a policeman who's been on the force for twenty years, and he has been dealing with absolutely appalling crimes. Uh, and he's on a, a current case um, where they're trying to to hunt um, a child kidnapper, and um, all these twenty years of being on the service surface. You know, is really starting to take its toll, and actually, what we're seeing is a man who, um, uh, 
he, he, you know, he's suffering a mental breakdown. It's an incredibly powerful performance from, uh, I was going to say Sylvester McCoy again, Sean Connery. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's hard hitting. It's it's bleak. It's uh, it's still a certificate fifteen film. Um, I, it's certainly a, th- a movie that I would recommend because um, I, I still think it's it's you know it's great. And um, oh, I've forgotten the actor's name now, but uh, there's an actor who plays uh, who's in the Doctor Who story Inferno. Um, he plays one of the leading characters in it as well, so <laughs> there is a bit oh. of a Doctor Who connection there. Um, so I watched that. But either. Sylvester McCoy wasn't in it. Uh, no, no, no. Unfortunately, yeah. Sylvester McCoy wasn't yeah. in it. No. Well, we'll see if the Happiness Patrol gets such a rave review as that did. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get started with the main topic, um, just to let you know, listeners, we've already discussed our favourite stories from the remaining classic Doctors. So if you'd like us to uh, if you'd like to hear us discuss the Aztecs, the Crusade, the Tomb of the Cybermen, the Invasion, Frontier in Space, the Sea Devil, City of Death, the Seeds of Doom, Earthshock, Resurrection of the Daleks, Revelation of the Daleks, Vengeance on Varos, and Ghostlight, which was Rob's um favourite McCoy story, do check those out. And there are many other stories in our archive as well, including all the Jodie Whittaker stories to date and several big Finnish uh, audio adventures. And more to come. And more. <laughs> Hopefully. Much more to come. Actually, um, at the time of recording, um, I I am about to get the Season 8 Blu-ray box set. It's in the post. I'm about to get it. I'm really, look- I'm really looking forward to it. Um, especially to see Terror of the Autons. And um, mm-hmm. I was reading someone's quick review on that because... Uh, obviously, it's all spruced up for the Blu-ray box set, but Terror of the Autons is one of those stories which they've updated some of the special effects. So that story had uh, an awful lot of use of CSO. I think it was it was the very first Doctor Who story to to use that, and it's it was incredibly obvious. Um, for example, there's a famous shot where one of the one of the characters is in, supposedly in her kitchen, but the kitchen clearly you could tell it she's not really in a set. It's a it's a projected uh, background, but mm-hmm. they've managed to do something to make um, the CSO less obvious, and they've actually updated the backgrounds and so on. Oh. So that's interesting, and from what I can gather, they've done a superb job on that. So I'm, I'm not only am I looking forward to revisiting those stories, but I, I'm interested to see you know how how they've you know what they've done to make. Um, mm tell the autons look a bit more visually appealing so um stay tuned for for the next That's podcast great. probably maybe you can tell us next week yeah how yeah. that looks yeah <laughs> so on um with the happiness patrol so a quick plot synopsis which is depression and misery are outlawed on the colony world terra alpha killjoys are tracked down by the happiness patrol and culled in routine disappearances Despotic Helena rules this warped society aided by the Candyman, chief executioner, whose kitchen makes little sweets and a fondant surprise for state executions. The Doctor and Ace arrive on the cusp of revolution and overnight show the pink festooned locals that sometimes they do need the blues. Uh, so anyway, uh, cast and crew. The Doctor, played by Sylvester McCoy. Ace, played by Sophie Aldred. Daisy Kay, played by uh, Georgina Hale. Earl Sigma, Richard D. Sharp, Gilbert M., Harold Innocent, Harold V., played by Tim Barker, Helen A., Sheila Hancock, Joseph C., Ronald Fraser. The Candyman was played by David John Pope, Priscilla, K- 
Priscilla P, Rachel Bell, Silas P, Jonathan Byrne. The Snipers were played by Steve Swisco and Mark Carroll. Susan Q was played by Leslie Dunlop, uh, who previously appeared in the uh, Peter Davidson story Frontios. Trevor Sigma was played by John Normington, uh, who appeared in Peter Davidson's final story, The Kids of Androzani. Uh, the directors, Chris Clough, incidental music, Dominic Glynn. The, the producer, of course, was John Nathan Turner. The script editor was Andrew Cartmel, And the writer of this story was Graham Curry. So, Rob, um, was this a story that you were familiar with or had, had you seen it before? I'd seen it before, but I just remembered the hallmarks of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the pink TARDIS. Mm-hmm. All the uh, the hairstyles, <laughs> uh, of course, the Candyman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think watching it again now um, was a bit of a fresh fresh perspective. When I when I said uh, when we were discussing which stories we were going to select for each of our doctors, um, we what was your, what was your reaction when I picked the Happiness Patrol? Um. It wasn't one I would have considered because, um, to me, it isn't one of the the main ones in my um, from my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm actually always glad to explore stories I'm not that familiar with. Mm-hmm. So yeah, oh, cool aim. <laughs> well, thanks. I feel that's a polite response of just going, "Why the hell did he pick that load of crap?" Um, no, okay. Because what it is is that some, I think the Happiness Patrol has had this reputation of being this just awful story because if you just look at it from a visual perspective you can take you know shots from the story completely at random and just show them to somebody and they go what the hell's that because i because i remember when i think it was 2003 um the the bbc did a 40th anniversary if i've got the air right i think it was the 40th anniversary um documentary uh that they had looking at doctor who and when they were looking at the the end of of the eighties, um, just before it was cancelled, um, the really a lot of the talking heads were sort of ridiculing it. In fact, funny enough, Verity Lambert was was one of those, where she said that when she was looking at what they were doing at the latter period of of the original run, she just thought it looked you know silly. Everyone thought they were being terribly smart, but it was camp, it was nonsense, um, the drama was lacking, and, and all the rest of it. And to demonstrate these points, they always seemed to show clips from the Happiness Patrol rather than rather than any other story. It always seemed to, ha- to be the Happiness Patrol. And, and, and if you're making that point, that at the end of the, the original run of Doctor Who... It was awful. It looked cheap and everything like that. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no easier target than I think than the Happiness Patrol, because it because it does have this incredibly artificial look, and people do look ridiculous. You know, they're they're quite, you know, everyone's wearing pink or sort of crushed red velvet with ridiculous purple, pink or orange wigs. You know, sl- you know the, the the makeup that they're wearing's in, you know, incredibly. <laughs> You know, it's almost sort of clown-like. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but actually, obviously, that's a deliberate production choice. I mean, you don't do something like that deliberately. Why would you make that choice? Well, actually, it's all part and parcel of helping tell the story. So it's a bit of a shame. If anyone's listening who hasn't seen The Happiness Patrol and going, you know, and has judged on those images, I get where you're coming from. But um, 
do go and watch it. Um, that look goes into telling the story and and what it's about. Um, but yes, it, it does look silly. But actually, the Happiness Patrol is quite a quite a dark story. So there's that. The other thing I think we want to discuss because you mentioned you mentioned him as well. Because the other elephant in the room is the Candyman. Um, what are your thoughts on the Candyman? Hmm. It's a bit of an analogy of um, horror movie type monsters, but uh, it's a bit it's a bit bizarre. How you scratching your head, thinking, "What on earth is he?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's never really questioned. Um, to help the viewer out until the very end. I mean, there's, a, there's maybe a moment where there's a hint, but you finally find out what he is at the very end in that like, in that final scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a bit of fun. I think it it lacked something, <laughs> <laughs> a purpose, or maybe there's something I was missing. Uh, and maybe he wasn't much of a threat. He was easily subdued. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With uh, with lemonade, um, it's it's one of those things where, again, taken out of context, because that that infamous or famous whatever um, appearance of Jonathan uh, Jonathan Grade on Room One Hundred One, um, where he was successful in putting Doctor Who <laughs> into Room One Hundred One. I think this was back in two thousand and four. Um, th- you know, th- they showed clips of of doctor who and they sort of ridiculed them they showed bock from the demons and they had a good they had a good laugh at that which is odd because i actually think bock looks good and the demons is very highly regarded so that seemed a bit of an odd choice but they 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 showed the candy man and paul merton who was the the host of room 101 at the time said uh, i'm surprised that um Bassett Company didn't sue because there's this whole thing that the Candyman actually looks like the um, their mascot uh, Bertie Bassett. Mm. Yeah, I think we'll all make the association. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they they get away with it because it's not clearly. A, I mean, if you look at the the Bertie Bassett logo and the and the Candyman, it, it, it's not a direct carbon copy, but it's an easy analogy to to make. Um, but I've always liked the Candy Man. I think I think the performances of it's really good. I mean, it, it's such a bizarre thing—a robot made out of sweets. <laughs> Why would anyone make such a thing? Um, even when it is explained, as you said, um, at the very end of the episode. Yeah. Even then, it's just like, well, that doesn't make quite sense. But for some reason, I, I just think it works, and I think it because um, even within. Even when the confines of the story, the candy man really stands out. He's not like anything else in in what is already <laughs> looking like yeah. quite a bizarre show. Um, but I've always liked that, and um, I, I, I've always just liked the character. In fact, um, f- if I remember rightly, because there was a book published in um, there was a series of books published in the nineties looking at each decade of Doctor Who. And then for the 80s, I remember when I was reading about the Happiness Patrol, they actually said that Bertie Bassett was prepared to sue the BBC for the ca- for, for Candyman. Um, really? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, they managed to to make a deal, which was that... Um, no, uh, we're terribly sorry. It, um, one, it 
doesn't exactly look like Bertie Bassett. And then the BBC actually broke down the reasons why. Uh, and, and then they actually made the point um, that the Candyman would be a one-off and would never reappear in the show. Um, but I think the idea of the Candyman reappearing in a show anyway, I don't think that was ever seriously on the cards. But anyway, it seemed to work and, you know, the BBC weren't sued for it. But uh, it's... Um, again it's 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 one of those things where I, I really like the character and the look and it's i mean it's it's quite a i mean you could actually argue from a design perspective it's very brave to propose something like that and then just go with it i mean this is a show which um they took a lot of brave decisions and because when we were discussing Ghostlight, i mean one of the things that is always praised about that story and rightly so are the production choices and it looks fantastic you know those those sets those costumes um, you know, the low lights, um, you know, really aiding in the atmosphere. And Ghostlight's a fantastic story, and we both absolutely love that. And then um, the Abidus Patrol is the complete opposite, <laughs> complete opposite of it, isn't it? There's no subtlety yeah. to it. Um, it's this bizarre-looking show. But in a, in a way, I, I kind of like it for that reason. Mm. Um, um, and the, aesthet- the aesthetics doesn't define the, the season as being bad, um the previous story was Remembrance of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. So we had this great um, 1960s setting. Um, and then we go straight to this. So, yeah. <laughs> it, it shouldn't define the era of the show. No, no. I think it's bad. No, no, definitely not. But, I mean, it was it was a year before its final year. Uh, and I think if you were going to look at, well, why was the show cancelled? Well, it was producing shows like this. And you go, bloody hell. Um, but anyway, I, I feel like we have to really discuss the, the production choices up front. Because really, in many respects, I think um, it's sort of the elephant in the room. But what we have just said. So I've got Doctor Who, the handbook, the seventh Doctor, uh, which was published in the 90s. And uh, in that, in... Apparently, for Doctor Who magazine, issue number 154 in 1989, Sylvester McCoy said this about the Happiness Patrol. The Happiness Patrol was slightly disappointing because it was done in the studio. I think it was a bit overambitious. If they've got to do a story in studio, it would be better to do something actually indoors. Trying to create a planet, it obviously doesn't work. You have to suspend, you have to suspend a lot of disbelief, especially as the other stories in the same season were so successful at creating what, wherever we were on location. I've got another quote um, from Sylvester McCoy uh, later on about the story, but it's. Um, I think that goes into the point where it, this is a story that's clearly made in the studio, yeah. uh, and it does have that artificial look. But actually, um, that works in the story's favour. Um, but I'll get onto that uh, a bit later on. So when the story starts. Um, we're in this alley. We've got, I mean, Dominic Glynn's, um score for this story, I just think is fantastic. It's its really atmospheric. It tells the story. It, it incorporates blues. So again, um, Dominic Glynn is aiding the telling of the story through his music as well as establishing the atmosphere. It's dark. You've got this woman dressed all in grey, clearly very despondent, alone. She goes to sit. And then she's approached by a stranger, uh, completely, completely in black. And there's sort of a film noir type thing um, going on here. Um, you could, you can almost suggest that there's, you know, you 
you could conjure up images of movies like The Third Man to a certain extent. Um, with its atmosphere and there's some use of interesting obscure camera angles to, you know, to suggest that, that you know, that there's something odd about this world and, and so on. And what ends up happening, it's it's established within the, within these opening moments that um, this woman's deeply, uh, deeply upset. She's lost people. And they're living in this world where you have to appear to be happy. Uh, and it turns out the man that she's talking to is a, is a spy for this system. And she's uh, promptly executed. So um, straight away, you know, we're... We're into the story and we've established the, the world setting within those first two minutes or, or however long it is. It's you know, so that's very effective storytelling through through the writing and the direction and the and the performances. And then quickly, uh, the Doctor and Ace arrive, um, and you know they're having a discussion. It's a nice little reference to the John Pertwee story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, uh, which is quite nice. Um, but it's established that the the Doctor has been hearing disturbing rumours about this planet and he proposes to do something about it. So this is the Doctor who's clearly aware that there's this evil regime He's and he's made the decision to go to it to destroy that regime. Um, that in itself, you could say, says an awful lot about you know the Seventh Doctor. Would you say? Um, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, compared to other doctors, I mean, when, so for example, when we, you know, when we looked at something like, you know, Colin Baker's story, Vengeance on Varos, he's thrown into that system, recognizing, oh, this is a bit, you know, this, this is dodgy and not very good, and then proposes to do something about it. And really, that's the same with pretty much every other doctor. You know, th they arrive into a situation, start to see what's going on, recognizing that this is bad and is affecting people, and then puts a plan in place. To hopefully make a positive change. Uh, the Seventh Doctor comes along and is completely different. He's heard some rumours, decides to go in and do it. Not only that, he proposes to do do all this in one evening. So, you know, he's uh, he's not he's not messing about. Um, and then, so really, the rest of the story is that is the Doctor finding out. Um, you know, information, having a little bit of fun, although they recognise that they're in clearly a very dangerous situation, and then helping bring this entire system uh, down. Um, I love that first interaction with, um, what's the guy, Trevor Sigma, mm -hmm. um, when the Doctor Hawk turns the situation around and um, asks for his name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so th we have this um, this guy who's taking a census of of all the populace uh encounters the doctor and ace and you know asks for their name apparently you know you can't have any nicknames it's all very official um the doctor asks for this guy's name and says uh you didn't tell me your name that's right um but then i didn't give it and da -da 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 -da. and then again it's the, it's that how the doctor takes charge of the situation and then gets him to show his identity and it's just a wonderful <laughs> you know, sort of doctory moment of turning the whole situation on its head and getting the information that he wants. And Sylvester McCoy plays that incredibly well. And it it's that sort of playing around with the rules and regulations, which was, you know, a, a part of his doctor. And it's there in Paradise Towers, his second story, and continues through. Um, and this establishes something later on that he does because he ends up um, changing his entire relationship 
um, with this guy, and um, he ends up becoming, you know, the, the Doctor becomes the dominant one, and um, mm-hmm. this character then feels that he has to constantly answer the Doctor's questions. And again, you know, that's sort of that's very nicely played. Uh, again, talking about another sort of like elephant in the room. Um, I'm, hang on, I'm going to read. Um, going back to the Seventh Doctor handbook. So this was when Sylvester McCoy was interviewed by Nicholas Briggs, actually, in 1994 uh, for Doctor Who magazine number uh, issue number 216. So this is what Sylvester McCoy said. He went, It was a great story, I thought. Really good. It had the underlining theme against the more extreme Thatcherite policies of our time. It had a neo-fascist feel about it as well. The harmonica music and the sense of longing. It would have been great in black and white. Maybe we should encourage everyone to turn their colour off when they watch it and see what it looks like. Uh, which is great. Just an idea. Yeah, yeah just just an idea. But then going into... Because one of the co-writers of this book was David J. Howe. And when he was summarising the story... I'm not going to read the full quote, but this is just the beginning. It goes, The Happiness Patrol is one of the stories that is impossible to clarify. Sorry, classify. It is both a thinly veiled attack on the policies pursued by Margaret Thatcher when she was Prime Minister of the UK, and also a bizarre almost knockabout comedy with the outrageously dressed and coughed happiness patrol vying for attention with the incredible Candyman. Um, so, one thing that those quotes both have in common is that it, it's, you know, it's suggesting that this story is a, a satire on um, Thatcherism. And that's always something that crops up in discussion with the story as well. And famously, uh, a few years ago, uh, Newsnight, the, B- the BBC um, uh, the BBC news programme, ha- ran this piece that um, Doctor Who was this incredibly political show. And they and actually the, the most political was the story called The Happiness Patrol. And they actually brought in Terence Dix and Andrew Cartmell as, as interviews to talk about this uh, with the suggestion that The Happiness Patrol is anti-Thatcher. Um, do you have any thoughts on that, Rob? Was that not the case? Um, no, um, I think when I was watching it, I was I was trying to see if I could find like, a newfound relevance in it. Because I actually think that this whole thing that the Happiness Patrol is all about Thatcher, I think, um, completely misses the point of the story. I think all that stuff is... Um, massively exaggerated it's there to a certain extent i mean helen a who's supposed to be, you know who's in charge you know she's the one who's in charge of this regime and you know there is this element that she's you know kind of based on thatcher and she has dialogue like um i like your initiative your enterprise sort of proving the point but although that's there it's like what i said i think the point that this this story is all about thatcher i think it clouds how rich and interesting the story actually is. For me, what the Happiness Patrol closely reflects is dictatorships in general. Sort of um, what it's looking at is totalitarian regimes. And all totalitarian regimes have this thing where it's, um, you know, obviously they have this, this, this clear mandate of how they see life should be and they enforce it. Um, with a complete disregard for for human life, and that's what the Happiness Patrol is, and this this image that all these regimes put in place that everything is fine on the surface, um, is always, you know, it's 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 artifice, it's artificial 
you know, life isn't good. Life isn't normal. And to, you know, and that's what the happiness patrol is, but it's doing it in this, um, in an interesting way, but also exaggerate, you know, exaggerating everything to, to make that point. And that goes into what we were discussing before when we were talking about the look of the show, uh, how everything is clearly, uh, you know, uh, how everything just looks bizarre. Um, you know, it's all artifice, but it's all crumbling. It's, you know, um, everything's... Well, it's un- mm. it's unsustainable. You can't, with uh, by controlling people's happiness, in turn mm. making them unhappy. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 and it's all it's all on it's all surface. It's you know, there's nothing, there's nothing really. You know, everyone's forcing a smile, but it doesn't mean anything. So, for me, what the Happiness Patrol more closely reflects is dictatorships such as General Pinochet, and he was responsible for killing thousands, and that's men, women, and children. Uh, you know, that was done quietly, methodically, and secretly. And he was also responsible for torturing and interning thousands more and banned political opponents. Um, culture was also limited uh, under the rule of Pinochet. I mean, I'm just using his example. You could, you know, th- there are loads of other examples, but I think, you know, he's a, uh, a a very good one to pick because he also banned traditional music and instruments, um, preventing mm. people to publicly, publicly express their feelings. And all of those things are in the happiness patrol so for me that's what that's what the happiness patrol is and that's what you know so i think for everyone who goes you know what the happiness patrol is it's it's anti-thatcher it's like if you honestly think it's anti then you misunderstand what thatcherism was and what you know you're not getting it and also the happiness patrol i think is a much more interesting uh, and richer story and actually a bit more nuanced just you know despite despite the look of the thing the other thing as well it, 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 the story yeah. sort of touches on as well is how these regimes you know manipulate language so earlier on uh when the doctor and ace say right we need to find out what's going on first we get ourselves arrested um which they do and again that that's wonderfully played by by the doctor um manipulating the situation because it looks like um they're going to get away with it <laughs> then the doctor points out something else and then they get themselves arrested um, they're not put in a prison; they're put in what's called the waiting zone, um, which I think is a is a really nice um, comment. Again, as I said on the manipulation of language, but something that's handled um, really well in the story. You know, it's you know, it's not a prison; it's a waiting zone. And you know, the doctor's trying to find out well, what's all this about, and goes, you know, yes, it's not a prison, but cross that line because there's a, there's a line which marks the um, the waiting zone. And goes, but you're a dead man. Um, so I think that's a nice touch. Um, and obviously, as, as I said, you know, I'll pick this as my favourite Sylvester McCoy story. Uh, and I do really like it. And I think it's, it's, it's great. I don't think it's perfect though. And one of the, one of the problems that I have with it, Rob, is the go-kart. You don't like the go-kart? Oh, what, what? You don't like the go-kart scene? Or do you, or you don't like the concept of the go-kart? No, it's... Uh, it's uh, it's it's really the go kart itself. I mean, <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? Well, like the chase scene kind of thing. Mm, yeah, that that doesn't um, doesn't sit well with me because uh, I don't know, it's it's very slow. Uh, in reality, it would be ineffective. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's. Um... I, I didn't mind the idea of having mm. um, these things within the waiting area, waiting zone, um, to tempt people and to trick people. The yeah, idea yeah. That, the, mm. the idea that it was rigged. I like that. Um, maybe if we'd seen a bit more of that, that would have been good. But yeah, the the actual ineffective disabling the bomb and, and nicking off of it, yeah, it didn't quite work. What was your issues? It's just, it's like what you've said. Um, I don't have a problem with the idea itself. This idea that there's, uh, it's sort of, it's tricking people into thinking that there's a means of escape when there isn't because the uh, the go card is booby trapped and if you you know it will blow up if you use it. So I've got no problem with the idea of it. It's just how it how it comes across. I don't think it's 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 the one moment in the story I don't think is directed particularly well. I think it's just I think it's the weak element of the story. But it's the fact that the go card is painfully slow. You know, and when you compare it again, you know, when you compare it to Vengeance on Varos. You know when they've got those those buggies, yeah, that they use. They actually, you know, they move at quite a good pace, and you know they're quite nippy. Um, so I can, and so when you've got a story like that using these big buggies, and they've got speed on them, and then you come to this story and it's got a go kart and it's just chugging along. Do you think the concept just... of this story on paper was like we will have a high speed chase here? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and um, it's just—it's just a bit unfortunate. I just—I just—it's one of those moments in the story where it's like, oh, this, oh, it, I just—I'm disappointed in it because it's like what I said. I really love the story, and there's a lot going on with it. But I feel like, of compared to the other stories that uh, we've both chosen, I feel like I really, really—I feel like I'm in a, a. I feel like I've really got defended more. You know, I, f- I feel like it's one of those things of going. Really, should be able to sit down and watch it, and the story speaks for itself. If you like it, that's great. If you don't, ah, it's a bit disappointing. But I feel like there, there's just certain things like like overcome the look of it because actually the the look of it is it's like what I've said. Um, that's a big part in telling the story. It's all about how uh, it's all about the fragile cosmetic appearance of evil totalitarian regimes that focus on presentation. Everything is fine on the surface. It all cracks eventually, and nothing is too far from being you know perceived the regime you know the regime can shroud everything through bureaucracy and death squads but it'll always lose in the end you know that's a deliberate choice in helping to tell that story um but when you just just something like this which happens quite early on in the story and i just feel like it's just it's the one moment in the story which i think takes you out of it yeah um because there is a you know there is a suspension of disbelief that one you know you've got something like the candy man (laughs) That uh, this robot that's made out of sweets, you know, and all this, and all these bizarre colours and everything looks artificial. Once you get over that and you just get into the story, it's fine. I think it's great. But then you've got this one moment you just kind of go, oh, oh, that's a bit. Oh, they could surely they could uh, surely they could have got a better go kart than that. Yeah, or um, or sped the scene up in post production. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's one way to do it. You know, could have have done that. Um, It's the one bit of the story that um, I think is a bit... um, A bit naff. Yeah, a bit naff. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Did you draw any comparisons to Varos with this? Because um, whereas that was also uh, 
we we considered it kind of an oppressive regime. Uh, it's kind of a different side of a coin here because the in Varos it was more um, they were oppressed because of the circumstances of um, the economy and mm. all sorts. It was more incidental uh, the way it was all it was all to do with trade and these um, tortures and all this. But with the Happiness Patrol, it's more to do um, with an oppressive choice um, from an individual. Uh, did you did you draw any comparisons between the two, or not? Um, a little bit. I mean, they're very much their own thing. I mean, the main comparison is that they're they're both making um, they're both satirical, and they're making a comment on. Um, you know regimes and uh, and as you say, there's, I think there's more of a focus on Vengeance of Verus has more to say about um, democracy and um, economics. Um, so that in that sense, it's completely different. Whereas Happiness Patrol, as I said, is is making a point on uh, totalitarian regimes. Um, so completely different in that sense. Economics does come in a little bit um, with the Happiness Patrol. You know, there's this... Uh, it's like what I said, I, I'm not completely ignoring the fact that there are certain elements of Thatcherism which creep into the story, but I don't think it's the be-all and end-all, and I think it's saying a lot more than that. But, um, you know, we've got... I think the Happiness Patrol, you know, it's, it's you know laissez-faire economic policies... You've got demoralised drones who march in silent protest against um, Helena's harsh, harsh policies. You know, you've got the planet's working class, you know, the pipe people, who are a literal underclass. They're the sort of like the disenfranchised members of this, cult, you know, happy society. Mm. Um, so you could say that, you know, they're the equivalent of the poor and the unemployed in Thatcher's Britain. Um, although having said that, though, you know... Th- the pipe people are the planet's native population. So it could also be seen as a comment on, you know, destructive forces of colonialism. Yeah, and the, the natives are outcast or driven underground. Yeah, but then either, you know, are you making that point or through, you know, through to territorial expansion or economic expansion? Because they're displaced within the story because of businesses stealing land. Yeah, which is just part of nature you know um displacement growth mm-hmm. you know, just general stuff yeah do you think um with vengeance on varos we found that the message it was given was incidentally becoming more relevant because of like um the reality tv stuff but um <laughs> do you think the happiness patrol is becoming less relevant um to the society we live in uh, no. Um, in answer to your last question, um, yeah, Vengeance on Verus, I think, has become much more relevant since it was uh, broadcast in 1985. Um, because, you know, it's talking about how it's talking about entertaining the masses as a means of distracting them from other major issues, which will affect them economically. Um, at the time of recording, where, you know, you know, we're living at a time where we're able to completely distract ourselves 
um, through through television, through our subscriptions, be it through Amazon Prime, Netflix, Disney Plus, or whatever it's called, etc., etc. While um, we have had our freedoms completely removed um, through not allowing, th- through being, you know, not allowed to see those uh, that you know whom we love, we're not allowed to basically do anything. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you've got the whole thing to do with reality television in general, anyway. Um, and then it also has something to comment on in relation to direct democracy, this constant thing of referendums all the time, you know, do they work? Um, and so, and I guess it's all down to a personal opinion, but um, generally there can be quite sh- quite shocking um, outcomes to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Vengeance on Pharos was a very interesting story in 1985 but i think it has become much more interesting because i think its points have become much more you know relevant the happiness patrol i still think remains relevant because it's talking about something that you know um we still have totalitarian regimes in existence i mean the 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 one example which immediately comes to mind is obviously china and then we've also got north korea as well um, so they're you know they're the obvious things. So we you know we still got these awful regimes, and um, um, hopefully not, but surely many more to come. Yeah, I th- yeah. I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but yes, um, I think so. Uh, and you never know; we ourselves may be sleepwalking into uh, into such a regime as well. Yeah. Um, but anyway. <laughs> Close to our podcast, always bringing smile to people's faces. Um, yeah, um, so the, what they're doing is that they're both making political points. They're both satirical stories. Um, some some things in which they come uh, cross over, but not a lot. Um, they're both very interesting stories. They've, they've both got their own points to make and make them in their you know in their different you know in completely different ways. I mean, uh, comparing the two stories, which, in terms of putting its message across, I mean, do you think one's more successful than the other? Hmm. I, I guess it depends on the viewer. Um, I found uh related more to the message from Varus. Hmm. Okay. Um, the association with with Happiness Patrol um, wasn't a particular particular cultural one. Um, I just associated it with totalitarian oppression. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, maybe I, I found more to dissect from uh, Varos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what's interesting about Varos is was I mean, it was. I think what Philip Martin was able to do was um, project his mind into the future. And, you know, obviously talking about you know he was being satirical about you know video nasties of of the period and censorship and what it means to be entertained and as well as democracy and the economy, which you know was all going on in the 80s, but doing in a way which um, was very imaginative. And those, those points don't, don't date, unfortunately. You know, um, the Happiness Patrol, it's interesting because um, that was commenting clearly on events of, of the time. More than more than anything, um, Vengeance of Eros obviously was commenting things at the time, but it was also, you know, projecting him into the future. The Happiness Patrol is really, because keeping in mind when this was broadcast, you know, it was still the Cold War. We still had, um, you know, the the awful things that were taking place in Eastern Europe, um, 
you know, so so though you know, spying on on its own population and and people still disappearing. I mean, that happened in Eastern Europe as well. Yeah. Um, um, in terms of a in terms of a preference, because I I, I both you know I love both stories. I mean, because um, it, it's interesting that you've picked up on you know the potential comparisons between the stories um, and the differences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the differences. And you know I've picked them as the favourites of you know the, of of the Baker and McCoy era, um, so I, I really like them both, and I think Vengeance of Varos is a you know is a, is a real classic and is incredibly rich. But I think of the two stories, I think um, I think I prefer the Happiness Patrol. Okay. I think probably because I like how it, it's making the point, and uh, I like it's. Um, I mean, this isn't to say that Vengeance of Eris isn't imaginative, but I think I prefer the the imagination and the design and everything of of this story. But. Yeah. Do you think the story um, benefits or could have done without the whole uh, thing about the natives of the planet and um, the aesthetics of them aside? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it, it adds something else to the story, and I don't feel it. Um, it's another rich layer. It doesn't feel um, the story's bogged down with with something else that didn't need to be there. I think it's um, I know I, I like that they're there. Um, I think it adds something further to the story. It doesn't feel like the story's got one idea too many. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I thought they were a bit bizarre, but um, I think, like we said earlier, they do have a um a natural kind of they do belong in this kind of scenario so, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah they're fine things stay <laughs> yeah, yeah and I, one of the things I like about them as well is they, they clearly um, they clearly like Ace yeah uh, and they and the doctor is aware that they've encountered her because they, they pick up her vernacular quite quickly and then yeah, there's the yeah I wasn't I wasn't a massive oh, were, you, did, were you not keen on that no <laughs> alright okay uh, <laughs> why is that I don't know, it kind of broke the drama and I thought it was there for a bit of a bit of uh, a bit of light entertainment. <laughs> Do you think it was uh, the it was forced humour? Yeah, I feel like um they picked up on those um phrases and aspects um too well, I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I see what you mean. Because it, it yeah, I see what I'm you mean. I'm trying to think of when it, when else it's happened in like movies and things. Um, I'll think of a bad example. <laughs> see, because I quite—I mean, this might have a, a comment on my taste. Because actually, we haven't had any um, listener feedback on this story, have we? No, I'll just go double check. Well, uh, well, you're. Um, <laughs> which isn't the first time. Uh, this has happened for this podcast, but one thing I will say is it's always with the stories that I pick. It, you know, I feel Rob like picks a it's story. It's not for lack of trying. I mean, it's, it's not like I've been on there every day um, trying to get the responses, but I feel like I've put quite a few um, posts out there. No, no, you have, but I, I find that the stories that you pick, it's just that, like, you know, people have an awful lot to say and love, you know, uh, even whether on the rare occasion that someone may not like the story, but, you know, everyone responds and has something to say about them. There's, I think this is the third time that I picked a story and, nah, nothing, nothing, <laughs> no one's got nothing to say. I don't get They're it. probably racing eyebrow and going, really? That's, nah, I'm not yeah. touching that. 
Um, so it, why so anyway, don't you like his stories, people? <laughs> don't know. Or they could be asking, why do you like these stories, Lee? Yeah. <laughs> so it might be a comment on my taste, or or in the case, the lack of it. But I quite like the. Fa- I just it, it made me smile a little bit that the fact that they think that Ace is called Gordon Bennett. <laughs> oh, it's those moments that ruin the stories. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, but. Um, but actually, I mean, I, so apart from that, I do think because again, because we're talking about dialogue, I do think um, this story does contain some, you know, some. Je- I mean, I'm not suggesting that that whole that whole scene is just the best writing of the story. It's not. There, are, there are you know there are great there are other great moments. One of them is um, really when the, when the Doctor has encountered the Candyman for the first time, and sort of he's been strapped into a chair and they're having this conversation. And uh, there's that whole line of the Candyman who says. Um, you know, you see, I make sweets, not just any old sweets, sweets, but but sweets that are so good, so delicious that sometimes if I'm on form, the human physiology is not equipped to bear the pleasure. Tell them what I'm saying, Gilbert. And then Gilbert um, responds, he makes sweets that kill people. <laughs> um, I like that. I like that whole I like the the way that, that that scene is written and I like the words, the dialogue and how they're performed. Um, and again, it's, you know, it's it's a little bit creepy, uh, you know, sweets that kill people. Um, just, you know, it's that element of horror because the candy man is this, you know, that this regime state executioner as well. Um, so it fits in um, going into another scene. Um, which I think is quite well written. It's a scene between the snipers. Um, do you remember that scene, Rob? Um, no. Oh, okay. Um, it's the scene when you've got the uh, the, uh, the two blokes. That oh, snipers. yes, I do know the scene. Yes, sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. So, and there's the scene. So the doctor. Um, goes to, to deal with them because they're they're obviously a threat so he needs to to get he needs to get rid of the snipers um so what he does is he actually he approaches them and he's standing face to face with um with these two snipers and one has a, a gun to the doctor's chest and then it's later pointed up to his to his face and it's this whole it's this whole thing of um bringing the point home to these two guys whose job it is to kill people but bringing bringing it home what it is that they're doing and i quite like uh, 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 did you like that scene i mean you yeah. forgot about it so probably not I, I, it was not very memorable <laughs> no <laughs> no it did it did come back to me <laughs> yeah i agree good scene <laughs> i've just had um, a, i've just remembered i had a dream um okay. that um it just came back to me, but I dreamt that um, classic Doctor Who was revived for a one-off special, and it was um, Peter Davison. Mm-hmm. Colin Baker refused to return, um, okay. and Sylvester McCoy returned. Right, um, and they did a, a three-parter um, in Albert Square. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea, yeah. Rob. Why don't they do it? I don't know, but I remember waking up like midway through it and thinking, "Oh, I was really enjoying that." <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Moving on. 
Right, okay. So, is your dream better than the Happiness Patrol? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> One Doctor Who story I can't watch. <laughs> um, it might happen. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Triplin, if you're listening... Um... Step down. <laughs> <laughs> Move aside. I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say, there's an idea for you. Yeah. Um, but then if he, you know... <laughs> well, I haven't been the most flattering to yes. Chris Chibnall, so no. if, if he has ever encountered this podcast, he... Uh, just, no. Yeah. Anyway. But um, I, I'm not of mind that he needs to actually leave. I'd like him to finish what he set out to do. <laughs> whatever that is. Yeah. It's really funny. Hang on, just going off on a tangent to Chris quickly talk about this. It's really funny with the Chris Chibnall era because he's actually come up with some very, very big surprises in the show when you think about it. You know, it was a big surprise, the master coming back. I mean, you know, that was, you know, that was brilliant. It was a big surprise with, there's another doctor, you know, and um, that story with the Jadoon. Uh, and how all that was done, and that was, you know, that was a massive surprise. So these are, you know, these aren't small things. These are like big, massive surprises, which in of themselves were handled quite well. Um, so for a series to c- contain these amazing ideas and uh, and kept as big surprises it is amazing. But it, it's really bizarre because, in my opinion, other than that, the show's quite bland. I wonder how we'll all look back on it. Do you think everyone will kind of retain this? feeling of hate or will they look back and um, re-evaluate and appreciate I mean all the eras that we've had in the new era um, mm. they're, they're never quite what you expect initially um, mm-hmm. and you're left feeling quite indifferent by the end um, I remember feeling really optimistic about Peter Capaldi mm. um, in retrospect um maybe I'm not overly fond of his stuff um, I would go out and say although he's probably not my favourite Doctor I would say he's potentially the best Doctor is that quite a brave thing to say? No know. it's it's not at all I, I know where you're coming from because I mean Peter Capaldi was one a very good actor he played the part brilliantly well um, I mean, you could argue in some respects he's sort of the Colin Baker of the current era because, you know, Colin Baker, a great actor, and played the part incredibly well. Um, but in some respects, perhaps didn't have the material. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's great. He plays no one else. He plays himself. And, mm. But, you know, he really understands the show, which adds mm. another level of um, appreciation mm-hmm. you can give him. Um, but I really think he... Um, put a lot into it. I, I do appreciate what he's done, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I, yeah, I think I think I'd stand by the fact that he's he is the best. But I'm allowed to pick a favourite aside from him. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, no. Um, I would say with Peter Capaldi, I think because he himself was brilliant. I think we're both in agreement with that, and I think most people would say that. But in terms of his era, I quite liked his first season. I think that was very strong, and I liked that. Um, arguably not perfect, but still very strong. Uh, and I liked his final season, um, but I think in between was really hit and miss. Mm-hmm. And I'm not keen on his final story once, uh, twice upon a time. Um, no, I, I, I don't mind it. I'll. It's quite interesting going back 
and rewatching a couple of scenes from it. But mm. uh, I think we didn't really relate to um, David Bradley's uh, Doctor mm-hmm. in certain ways. Yeah. Um, there wasn't that many issues with the story itself. I don't think we had. Yeah, I just I, I feel like um, had Peter Peter Capaldi's final story been the, the the final story of his final season, so that the Cyberman story, I've forgotten the title of it now, the one that was uh, with um, with John Sim. And, yes. Um, had that been his final story, that would have been a fun, you know a, a a really strong, powerful, and emotional way to to end. In my view. That should have been his final story, and he would have gone out with a bang. Um, Twice Upon a Time for me just feels self-indulgent. I don't think it fully works. The story's okay on the whole, but the way that um, the first Doctor's brought back in, and I think his Doctor's completely misrepresented. Uh, mm. It even goes goes as far as to um, give a reason why he left. Which was perhaps um, too much information, because it was more. That was yeah. more of an. That's more of an interpretation. You know, you, everyone's got this head cannon, um, if you if you don't mind that term, um, mm. but he left Gallifrey to answer a question: um, Why does good always prevail over evil? And all this. It, it, it's this really grand idea, uh, but mm. it it was a very conclusive reason and I don't think um, I don't know yeah I I I don't want to say everything bad about David Bradley because it's such a good performance yeah I think it's more to do with how the the character was written rather than performed because David Bradley is a good actor and very very good but um... and then we had all the um, the period um, I don't know what do you call it sexism the the um, yeah, and the first Doctor wasn't sexist. I mean, that's the biggest yeah. bugbear that I have of that story. It just completely misrepresents his Doctor. Yeah, if anything, he was the outsider. He mm. wasn't a contemporary um, stereotype. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the thing. I think, really, I th- what I mean at the end of the day, what you want is just good, strong stories. And sometimes, you know for the series to, to make bold choices. Haven't got a problem with that. We're talking about the Happiness Patrol, for goodness sake. Um, uh, hardly the most subtle story. Um, but at the end of it, you, you know, it, the title of the show is Doctor Who. The idea is that... I mean, it's a bit difficult, I suppose, to a certain extent, for, for a series that's gone on this long for the Doctor to be um, wholly mysterious. But you try and maintain that as much as possible. Yeah. Although we've got more of the mystery back now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but again, it's we we have but we haven't. Um and actually And there's a the there's a danger well. that it might get answered soon as well. <laughs> and then where did where were <laughs> Oh just shoot. even more answers. I mean the questions. biggest problem that I have about the the timeless child is that it makes the doctor far too important in time lord society. I mean one of the big things about the doctor is that you know he is someone who goes and makes change. It's this idea that this one you know one person can 
factor change. They don't have to be the most socially important person. Mm. But now it's established that he, you know, he he's an, you know, really the doctor is entirely responsible for how Time Lord society operates. He's that important. That's what I don't like. No, um, I think it it's a bit weird. It it tries to establish for the mystery of the doctor whilst at the same time really destroying perhaps that's a bit too strongly put but um well no the t- the time lords have this big um legacy in the show mm. they've got this big kind of legend deep rooted in and now um the questions we're trying to answer predate that they're just this blip in the history of doctor who that were on the doctor's journey Mm. And it makes it, uh, yeah, how relevant? How relevant is it to storytelling now that the time lords? Um, and one of the issues that I had at the time was it knock it then knocked the master off this pedestal because he was no longer an equal to the doctor. Yeah, because even though not everyone really wanted them to be siblings, but there's always that thing that they could have been siblings or. Or um, or raised together. Well, they were definitely in school together. But you know what? They should. I, I like the idea that they were two sides of a coin and equal, um, good and bad, kind of. Yeah, I mean, what I liked about the the, the Doctor and the Master's relationship um, is that 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 they had once been friends. I think that was quite good. But then actually, it was their complete ideological differences which tore them apart. Um, I mean, one good thing that the the Peter Capaldi era did in rela- was their relationship was the doc, you know, the, the the Doctor trying to get his friend back, um, and the consequences of that, and actually how how it's and there's a tragedy there because actually at the end of it the Doctor fails. Uh, sorry, um, the Doctor hasn't failed. He does win his friend back, but he doesn't know that. And is that horror? There's that 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 irony as well. Is that it, you know the Master kills the Master. Um, because of that, it's that was I think very good writing, very well done. Um, but it's you know, but there's always that thing of them being equal, and in fact, in some instances, with the master even being better than the doctor. Because if you go back to the John Pertwee era, and again, it goes back to I'm really looking forward to rewatching season eight because it's the one season where the master is in every single story. Um, I. I like that thing because actually sometimes the doctors, uh, the John Pertwee's doctor could be very, um, uh, very prickly and, you know, put people's backs up and sometimes could be actually be quite a bit of an arse. Whereas the master, you know, but he, but the doctor's clearly the good guy. Whereas the master, pure evil, but, uh, you know, he's very charming. Um, and, you know, so I liked the, the contrast between um, their personalities um, and the fact, you know, that they're both time lords, that they do have this history together, and actually, that you know, the master is sometimes better than the doctor, and vice versa. It's it's great, but yeah, the whole timeless child really sort of eradicates that. Yeah, um, unless we one day get the timeless master. Yeah, maybe. Then... <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's uh, it's not a not an idea that I'm keen on. Whereas the Happiness Patrol is an idea that I'm very keen on. How's that for a backward segue? <laughs> and yeah, actually, because so just talking about that, because actually at this at this period of the show that we're talking about, because it you know this was um, season twenty five, so the show had been going on for twenty five years. 
Andrew Cartnell was aware that actually a lot of the mystery of the Doctor had had vanished. So what he was bringing into the series was, you know, bringing that mystery back, um, which really starts to come into the series. Into the series, you know, it's there in droves in Remembrance of the Daleks, which is the the story that opened um, season twenty five. Um, the Happiness Patrol does this other thing as well because Andrew Cartmel felt that the Doctor had become a patsy in his own show. He wasn't a character who was in charge of his own destiny. Whereas the happiness... It's established in Remembrance of the Daleks, but again, it's here in The Happiness Patrol. You know, It's like what I said, what opens the story up. He, he comes in and uh, with a clear intention of destroying this awful regime within an evening. Actually, really what he does is he, he helps everybody else giving this regime just the final push to get rid of it um you know and it's there in silver nemesis it's like doctor who are you and lady painfoot knowing who supposedly the doctor is and and all the rest of it so this is the period of the mccoy era where it's you know attempting and i think succeeds in bringing the mystery back to the doctor yeah and um did andrew cartmel intend on bringing more of the mystery I, i know i know in concept um, the so-called master plan hmm. that um, that was uh, touched upon in the Virgin books. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is those very specific elements from the books? Is that what he was going to incorporate into the show in later days? No, it was it was just they had this sort of this loose idea of bringing the mystery back to the Doctor, but then. Uh, there was an interview with Ben Aronovich who said, but the problem is you can't be too specific because then if you're too specific, you've got this very specific, and then you end up having the problem that you were trying to eradicate in the first place. Which that, is the problem was, we have now. <laughs> yeah, which is the problem that we have now. The the idea is that actually, the, the idea was to be a bit more organic. Just put in these 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 further questions that there's more to the Doctor than we perhaps realise, that he's more than just a Time Lord. Yeah. Um, maybe he was involved at the very beginning of Time Lord like, Time Lord uh, Society, as yeah, we know. Maybe, maybe yeah, he was be, be ambiguous, you know, only yeah, to be, the viewer. Yeah, yeah, that's it, you know, be ambiguous, and, and that's the thing. Um, there was this idea of the of the looms, which Mark Platt came up with, wouldn't have been in the series, because actually um, Ghostlight is effectively a rewrite of that Lone Barrow idea. Um, Andrew Cartmel liked Mark Platt's writing, but thought no you can't go down that route one it's um it'd be too expensive to execute that story but actually we're trying to maintain the mystery of the doctor and actually what we want to do is bring ace more into um the series yeah as a you know um but long is brought in effectively to close the the virgin new adventures um and then and then aspects of that are kind of um not followed through in uh, the TV, I guess. Well, that's another thing as well. When the show comes back in 2005, um, you, the way that they bring the, mis- the, mis- the mystery back is they get rid of the Time Lords. They're gone. There was this war between the Time Lords and the Daleks. We get snippets of it, but again, there's an ambiguity to it. Um, and that's why... That mystery works. Works. Yeah. If you eradicate that mystery, um, you have to bring in a new one, which 
they intend they sort of do which is this idea that you know the doctor might have to look for gallifrey we don't know where it is but then the problem is <laughs> they don't stick with that idea and then so then to bright to try and bring the mystery of the doctor back i mean that i think that's one thing that is good about russell t davis uh up you know with all the lead writers up to including chris chibnall they understand the need for that the problem is with chris chibnall is he's introduced this idea with a timeless child and yeah okay we don't know where the child is, the ta- the timeless child came from but in many respects it doesn't matter because everything is far too specific and well, the doctors become mm, far too important mm. when we finally do get to find out if we do uh, it might be gently retconned because we don't know maybe the child was Gallifrey to begin with. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, we'll have to see where we go, where they go with it. I mean, that, it's like when we've previously spoken about um, the uh, the Daleks that were introduced in Victory of the Daleks. Yeah, and the new paradigm. Yes, that's it. Uh, the paradigm Daleks. If you're I mean, one of the things that we want to do, if you're bringing an idea, you know, have the strength of your convictions and follow it through. Don't just abandon them. You know, if you've got a clear idea, go with it. Um, They introduced these paradigm Daleks and then they got cold feet and then decided not to do anything with them. It's like, well, what was the point of bringing them in the first place? Have the strength of your convictions. Um, People are going to tune in and watch anyway. So even though I think a lot of people have pushed back with this idea of the timeless child, um, I want Chris Chibnall to, you know, with whatever idea that he has for his period of the show, stick with it. Yeah. Um, I th- I think um, it's not in- entirely, but I think the the concept of the timeless child is almost watertight when you look um, at how it fits in. I don't think too much um, contradicts the whole idea. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so anyway, just so just going back to um, the Happiness Patrol. Oh yeah. Patrol. <laughs> What's going on uh, this week? <laughs> um, one of the things again so, that I really like about the story is actually when we're coming to the end of it. Um, it's that, uh, and I've I've been I've been watching the Happiness Patrol on my own and then someone's come in and, and they've seen this scene between the Doctor and Helen A and they've been absolutely captivated by it and they went, oh, this looks like a really good story. Um, <laughs> they like the end of it. Um, which is... What I like about it is that Helen A has lost but um, she still get, she's still got this, this idea that um, she, she can win somehow, that she can escape. And somehow out there, um, she can find the society, society that she wants. The Doctor hasn't really convinced her, but I like that whole scene and the dialogue that they have. You can't get away, Helen A. There's a scheduled flight in an hour. You can't stop me, Doctor. Oh, I know I can't, but it's not me you're running away from. Who is it then? Yourself. That's why you'll never escape. They didn't understand me. Oh, they understood you only too well. That's why they resisted you. They only wanted the best for them. The best? Prisons, death squads, executions? They only came later. I told them to be happy. 
but they wouldn't listen. I gave them every chance. Oh, I know they laughed sometimes, but they still cried. They still wept. Don't you ever feel like weeping, Helen A? Of course not, Doctor. It's unnecessary. And those that persisted had to be punished. Why? For the good of the majority. For the ones that wanted to be happy, who wanted to take the opportunities that I gave them. And what were these opportunities you gave them? A bag of sweets? A few tawdry party games? Bland, soulless music? Do these things make you happy? Huh? Of course they don't. Because they're cosmetic. Happiness is nothing unless it exists side by side with sadness. Two sides. One coin. You can keep your coin, Doctor. And your sadness, I'll go somewhere else. I'll find somewhere where there is no sadness. A place where people know how to enjoy themselves. I'm sure you will, Helen A. A place where people are strong, where they hold back the tears. A place where people pull themselves together. Where there is no compassion. Where there's control. A place where there is no love. I always thought love was overrated. Finally, Helena's emotion, you know, breaks through. Uh, sort of rejoins humanity as a result, and she just lies there, you know, crying. And Sheila Hancock again, just superbly playing that that scene. Um, you know, and the nurse coming goes, you know, what do we do now, Doctor? And the Doctor just goes, it's done. You know, she's, you know, she's learned her lesson, and that's it. The whole regime has finally come to an end. You know, I think it's great, and. And then we end on that scene, you know, every, you know, again, it, it's, this is perhaps another thing that uh, the story has a little bit of in common with Vengeance on Varos. Vengeance on Varos ends, you know, the, the Doctor has eradicated this evil regime. People have their freedom, but this is, you know, there's that brilliant scene, uh, you know, where, uh, with Etta saying, you know, well, what do we do now? And there's that moment of hope and then there's that doubt and she goes, I don't know. And this and this story has a sort of similar thing where it, you know this regime's come to an end, but it's 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 a massive change, you know. And there's this hope that um, that things will hopefully work out, but there's a little bit of doubt. But but what I like about it is because there's there's been this um, this slogan, Helena constantly quotes, you know, happiness will prevail, which is just this nonsense phrase, um, like it's bandied around. But then the Doctor, at the very end, repurposes it. And it actually, you know, because it was just this meaningless fa f phrase uttered by Helena, but then the Doctor repurposes it. It carries a lot of weight at the end. Where they say, you know, will everyone be all right? And then the Doctor goes, happiness will prevail. Um, and suddenly, the, you know, it carries a lot of weight and finally has meaning. And it's, again, that's just a lovely bit of writing. I, li I like that an awful lot. And then, you know, we... Yeah. Uh, crash into the credits and another thing that i really like about that scene as well is um they've changed the lights 
everything has this blue tinge to it and it just looks great as well all oh, right don't think i picked up on that out in the streets was it yeah yeah it's just it, there's this wonderful because now everything's just um because they brought in this this element of music which is you know the, the, the blues as a means of encountering against this you know because they play lift music everywhere or muzak this music with no soul it's just meaningless noise as a means to supposedly cheer people up but it's bland soulless music it, you know um so now that you know the happiness patrol regime's come to an end everything has this blue tinge to it and you know it looks great and again it's sort of that that wonderful use of uh you know direction and lighting as a means to tell the story as well they're using expressionistic tropes um i think it's great i wish in some respects that they went a bit more in that direction because uh chris clough who directed it uh i think has said in uh, in an interview when talking about the story that he wanted to use much more film noir techniques you know he wanted more angled cameras which you see in some scenes certainly in the very first episode but they don't follow that through and i just wish that in some respects that they were just a little bit i mean they've taken risks with everything else i wish i just wish that they would been a little bit more braver mm. in following that through um because you've there's some you, you could i mean if you were really analyzing the story um i think you could you could say that there are elements of the story which you could link to german expressionist cinema like uh dr caligari's oh i've forgotten the full name of dr caligari's cabinet or something um and movies like metropolis and things like this you know you could german expressionist film and it has that look in the set design uh with certain scenes like the candy kitchen uh and so on and it looks great and i think i mean chris club does a very good job with the direction but for 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 what he said what his original intention was i, I just wish it's just oh, i would have been great if you just fully went with that idea but anyway you know it is what it is and it, it it's still strong and and and, and 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 imaginative so yeah there's always some kind of limitations um mm. yeah good solid story so when you were watching it um and you came to the end of it, what was your sort of overall thoughts on it? I appreciated it a lot more, um, and there's a lot more I picked up on, apart from the, the like I said, the hallmarks of the story, which is all I kind of remembered. Uh, mm-hmm. I did, like you were saying, I liked the, uh, the Doctor was represented very well. Um, mm-hmm. As a character, he was written very well, and there was one line as he had um, in the interactions. Um, I did like now that you mentioned it. I I do quite like the fact that it was um not on location because the um the studio lighting um associates with this place. Um, so there might not be. I don't think they would have been able to achieve the shift in lighting at the end if it had been on location, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it changed to the more bl- kind of blue aesthetic. I think it's one I'll, I'll revisit again soon. This story. Did you reflect on it differently when you re- revisited it, or did you not watch it lately? <laughs> no, no, no. I did. I, I did watch it recently. I, you know, um, uh, one had to for the purposes of the podcast. But I was always happy to to watch this story. It's. Um, I remember the very first time that I watched it. Oh, I think I would have been. 10 or 11 
when it came out on VHS. And I remember I had a friend of mine who had access to UK Gold and they had recorded it. And so they, they lent me their recording of it, um, uh, which I th- and then I, I remember watching it and then not long after it officially came out on VHS and so, so I bought it. And I've always sort of liked the story. Uh, but it's one of those because of its themes and what the story is about um i think it carries much more weight um as an adult because you're rec- you know you're truly recognizing the themes of what the story is about it's yeah you know you're watching as a kid and the doctor's you know going to this regime it's all a bit weird people are dying and the doctor fights against it but it's uh, as an adult you're recognizing um it's a different perspective the specifics yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so I've always liked the story, but I, I like it a lot more. And um, it was interesting because it, many years ago, I'd, I had a blog where I was going through all the Doctor Who stories in order and I was reviewing them. Um, when it came to the Sylvester McCoy era, I mean, I think in the past, you know, had you said, you know, what you know, what was your favourite Sylvester McCoy story? I think I would have said, well, it's clearly Ghostlight or Remembrance of the Daleks. Um I mean, there are other good stories, in, you know, during that period, but they, you know, they're the standout ones. So I think I would have very easily picked one of those, probably Ghostlight. Um, but during that period, when I was doing this blog, it was for, for me, it was the Happiness Patrol that really stood out, and that's the story that I settled as my favourite, which took me pleasantly by surprise. But I went, well, that's my favourite story. Um, and on reflection, for the purpose of this podcast, when I was going through the stories, I mean, I, you know, I'm totally with you. Ghostlight is a remarkable story. I, I absolutely love that. And we both gave it 10 out of 10. Um, you know, and we both like, really like Remembrance of the Daleks, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there are other stories in the theory as well. But I, I still pick the, ha- obviously I still pick it because, you know, we're discussing it. Um, but uh, the Happiness Patrol is, for me is the one that, really resonates a lot more because one I, I like what it's about um and i like its imagination and how it tells that story and i think um everything else is is pretty much strong i really like the performances and dominic glynn's music provided is is just fantastic i really like the music as well um so even though there are one or two things in the story which i said before which i don't think are perfect like the, the go-kart um and maybe the look of the pipe people, um, I can sort of <laughs> forgive. Yeah, um, I can sort of forgive it for that, and you know, because everything else it just resonates a lot more, and I, I just love the story. All right, oh, I'm really torn on a score. Have you got a score in mind? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, okay. it, I, th- I think if I was if I was weighing it up properly, I would, you know, I you know, if I was trying to be as um, objective as possible. Um, I think I would give it a slightly lower score than the one I'm about to give it, but because it is generally a story that that I really, really love, um, for all the reasons that 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 we've discussed, uh, I'm giving it a ten. Magic. And yeah, and then that last Doctor Who convention that we went to, um, I can't remember when that was. It feels like it was years ago, but it was. But <laughs> it feels like it was a lifetime ago. Um, I because uh, Sophie Aldred was was one of the guests there. This is the one. This was the DVD that I got her to sign. Ah, oh, great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think if I was being objective about it, uh, as much as one can be, I'd pr- I might give it an eight, possibly a nine. But because of you know, I just I I can't help but love this story, for you know for for what it was trying to do, um, you know for what it was attempt you know for for its attempts 
uh, and for and it gets a lot of those things right. You know, it was brave and it what it is imaginative, and I like the themes of the story and how it's executed. And, you know, I'm basically just repeating myself. I just truly love it, and um, it is one of the most imaginative, rich, and satisfying stories for me, and one of my all-time favorites. So. For me, it's something that I would say for, for a lot of people, it's certainly worth watching. And, you know, that's I can't help but give it 10 out of 10. Ah, oh, that's great. Um, I think I had to settle on an 8. Um, I possibly deserves more. I didn't mark it down just because of its shortcomings. I just, I just hmm. the way it sits with me. Um, yeah, just my gut feeling. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I possibly don't have the level of appreciation you got or the type of feeling you've got towards the, the story mm-hmm. um, but I do like it and appreciate it, I think it's a good score. Oh no no, it's a damn good score um, uh, you know, that's very respectful so I'm, I'm pleased uh, I'm pleased you liked it so our social media, you can get us on Twitter at Podcast Bell, we're on Instagram Cloister underscore Bell and um, and our website is cloisterbellpodcast.com yeah and uh, you can check out some of our other great Sylvester McCoy reviews not many actually <laughs> <laughs> but we did review the preceding story to Happiness Patrol which was Remembrance of the Daleks we mm-hmm. talked about that in September 2019 um, and a couple of McCoy audio dramas as well Um but there's a lot more we need to need to revisit in the television era. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a seventh Doctor word search you can check out. Good, good. If you, if you like that kind of thing, mm-hmm. I actually quite I quite enjoy them. One of the things I quite like as well is that um, each time it uploads the the word search on the website, it's it's never the same as the last one. So they all, yeah. they always change. They are quite good fun. Yeah. Um, what we're doing now for the podcast is at some point we will go back to the you know we will be doing our favorite um stories of the new era doctors um but we're just going to take a little bit of a break from that and just um do you want to tell the listeners what we're going to be doing next yeah from now for the next few podcasts at least uh we are gonna look at just whatever really (laughs) well um i've chose a ninth doctor story um, and I've chosen one I Lee might have a better perspective of what people's views are but I've chose Boomtown mm-hmm. um, which I thought was quite good it was a very unique story in the in the run of 13 episodes from series 1 mm-hmm. uh, there's nothing quite like it in, the, in that series um, we'll find out what your views were Liam next week Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully, I feel more optimistic. We'll get some responses for that. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we will. It's yeah. a story you've chosen. Um, <laughs> I've got appalling taste, apparently. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you don't have to tell us now, but have you got something in mind for your next choice? Yes, I have. I mean, because Can we sort of, when we were discussing this, we were sort of saying, well, maybe we wanted to pick something from the new era. Um, and we're thinking, well, maybe pick a story that we like, but feel like it's in some respects underappreciated. Um, 
so you picked Boomtown. Uh, I'm really looking forward to rewatching it and for us to discuss uh, our thoughts on that. Me so, too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting choice. Good one, Rob. And we're back um, back to a um, forty odd minute episode. So it's a it's a different kind of beast to kind of tackle, isn't it? Because we go back because hmm. each each podcast we do, we have to go back and revisit these episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm never sure on the right approach. Do we do we talk about it? episodically or as a whole um so um yeah it's a different approach with these um standalone episodes mm-hmm. uh, and i picked a standalone episode uh, i'll hold off on it a little bit but it's from it's from the 10th doctor era Ooh, loving monsters no um... no i mean i i was very tempted to pick that one actually um because i mean it's it's not a story without its faults but at the same time I do enjoy that story an awful lot. And it has a poor reputation, and I don't think it's fully deserved. Um, I do like Love and Monsters. I mean, we have previously talked about Fear Her, which is a story which I think its poor reputation deserves. Having said that, though, it's tremendous fun watching it (laughs) for those reasons. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So if you want to hear our full discussion on Fear Her, because that's uh, that's another podcast that we've done a while back, um, so it is there to listen to. We also went one step further and reviewed the Tardisode that went along with Fear Her as well. <laughs> yes, yes, we did. Yeah, we're not, you know, we're certainly thorough, very comprehensive. Great. So, yep, yeah, Liam, don't tell me what you're reviewing. I'll, you can tell me next week, <laughs> and I'll, <laughs> yes, tra- we'll I'll try and get. I think I'll have to, but yes. <laughs> um, well, that's great, Liam. Thanks for um, all the insight. <laughs> Really good. <laughs> As ever. Yeah. Thanks everyone. Uh thanks Rob. Uh take care everyone. See you around everyone. Bye. Bye.